This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanam. And I'm Jamal Dajani. Jamal, we have a great show. We're, we're on the precipice of war with Russia. The United States, NATO, and its allies are gearing up. We have 130,000-plus troops, Russian troops, surrounding three sides of uh, the Ukraine right now. We have U.S. troops going throughout various NATO countries in Europe right now. We had the uh, Prime Minister of Germany, Schultz, meeting with Putin. Macron is meeting with Putin. Everybody's meeting with Putin. And uh, the Ukrainians seem to be taking it in stride. But uh, we'll be talking about a very important question today, which is, is Putin bluffing or not? Very important question. In addition, we're going to be talking about uh, all things related to Palestine, including the ongoing ethnic cleansing of communities and neighborhoods in the Sheikh Jarrah area. And I'd also like to throw out there on the table that apartheid Israel, even after the Amnesty International report came out uh, labeling Israel as an apartheid state, they're being rewarded by U.S. politicians, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Ro Khanna, uh, Barbara Lee and Eric Swalwell, all from Northern California, Jamal, right from where we're we're at, are all on a junket going to visit the apartheid state uh, in the near future. So it seems like becoming an apartheid state actually gets you a lot of benefits from U- U.S. Congress people. But just I have to ask, isn't this predictable? Of when course it Israel's is. Israel's back to the wall, you know, Israelis surrogates right here in Congress. They hop on a plane for photo up to show solidarity and support and to reject the international community at large and all major uh, human rights organizations by by showing well, up and schmoozing right, and saying, look, right. we are in a democratic country, nothing to see. Right. And 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 I think we need to call that out because it, it, it relates very well with what we're going to transition to right now. You had a really great uh, interview with uh, Israeli-Canadian journalist uh, Leah Tarachansky uh, talking about kind of her perspective on uh, apartheid Israel. I mean, she has some interesting analysis. I mean, she actually believes that Israel has been an apartheid state and that the international community is only catching up now. She did have some interesting things to say about BDS, I'm kind of interested in having a discussion afterwards about it, but uh, well, you she know, believes she believes uh, all these things are helpful uh, to lead to dismantling apartheid, but she doesn't think that BDS is making uh, much of an effect on Israel, or it's going to affect like five percent of. Uh, I got it. You know what? Uh, maybe Israeli uh, I guess, GDP, uh, GDP, or something like this. And also, she she believes that the Israeli uh, left is doing uh, quite a bit. I mean, well, that's where know, I would disagree. That, you know, for, forget <laughs> that's about where the government, uh, regardless of the government, the people, right, right, mobilizing, which are a lot of Israelis. We've seen they are mobilizing and speaking against uh, apartheid more and more, including uh, former politicians. But I don't know if this is enough to right. make any change uh, from within or within the Knesset. Especially when we're going to later on uh, start talking about the first thing, we'll be talking about what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah and the ethnic cleansing and, and this government and all the right-wing activists and politicians who are mobilizing basically to expel Palestinians from their homes, just like the repeat of Al-Nakba over and over and over for this, what, the 70th time? or Well, it's, uh, it's never stopped since 1948, Jamal, and that's, that's part of, you know, when, when Leah says that uh, the, the international community is only catching up, she's right. They're 70-plus years late to the party of Israeli apartheid. And, you know, the good news is that, you know, she agreed with your, your point of view. We'll, we'll circle back on that. I'm not quite sure I agree with the idea that the left is doing a lot, the Israeli left, whatever that is. Let's listen, let's listen and watch uh, Leah Tershensky, an Israeli-Canadian journalist. 
The state of Israel's treatment of Palestinians is a crime against humanity and is illegal under international law, Amnesty International said in its 280-page report earlier this month. The rights group says Israel's oppression and domination of Palestinians amounts to apartheid. Amnesty is not the only human rights organization to use the A-word in describing Israel. It was preceded by Human Rights Watch, the Israeli rights groups uh, Beth Salem and Yeshdin and others. Joining us to discuss this and more, journalist and filmmaker Leah Tarshansky. She has worked as an Israel and Palestine correspondent, uh, video journalist, investigative reporter, and writer. Welcome to Arab Talk, Leah. Thank you for bringing me on. So even before the official uh, release, the Israeli government was vilifying and slandering amnesty in a desperate attempt to torpedo this damning uh, report, Israeli politicians mm -hmm. always brag about creating facts on the ground. Uh, why are there still denial or they're still in denial about apartheid, which is now a fact on the ground? Israeli politicians are denying that Israel is guilty of apartheid because apartheid is a crime under international law. Yeah, but do you think they're in denial about the facts? I mean, maybe I should not, I, mean, I should expand the question and include Isra the Israeli public. I mean, are they aware that the, there is a transformation here? You, ha you have four major organizations, two international ones, and two Israeli ones that are now are saying, listen, uh, this country has turned into an apartheid regime. I think that just like in most countries, the Israeli public is not really represented by the Israeli government. Um, and I think that why Israeli politicians, people in power who have a big picture, deny apartheid is a different reason from what's going on on the ground. Um, I mean, um, just like in most settler colonial states like Canada, for example, where I live half the time. Um, the average settler person who's not indigenous to the land is not really aware, is not very conscious of the experience of indigenous people. Um, and so even the very idea of them being settlers, it's kind of abstract. Like in Canada, if you talk to the average Canadian and you say, hey, why is Canadian settler colonialism still such a violent, murderous action? They will say, what are you talking about? So I think that... Um, in that way, Israel is not unique. So you're actually, I'm glad you've kind of started talking about that and, and settle, settler colonialism because uh, I mean we're we're seeing this ongoing now. I mean as as we're talking now, uh, Sheikh Jarrah has witnessed another assault by Israeli settlers, uh, a, gr a group of settlers led by far right Knesset member Itmar Ben Gvir. Uh, had erected a tent, uh, land next to uh, the Salem's uh, family home mm -hmm. uh, this morning and set up a parliamentary office station there. They're dancing. They've been dancing. They've been sing singing racist and Islamophobic chants. And they've been, you know, for now the past several months uh, taunting these these residents. And, you know, you've you've spoken about settler colonialism, not, not only now, but before, but it seems that nothing is stopping them now. I mean, uh, where do you see this heading? Well, I, I'm, those are two separate ideas. Itamar Ben-Gvir is the ideological descendant of uh, Rabbi Meir Kahana, who is himself an ideological descendant of revisionist Zionism and Etzel. So you can trace the idea uh, of Itamar Ben-Gvir to the very, very origins of Zionism and the state of Israel. And what that idea is, is a particular stream inside of Israeli politics that actually believes in a Jewish state, uh, not a democratic state. So Itamal Ben-Gvir, ironically, is not somebody who denies that Israel is an apartheid state. Itamal Ben-Gvir believes that Israel should be an ethnocratic theocracy, that Israel should be a theocracy like I don't know, Iran, um, where uh, Jewish religious law a very particular version of Jewish religious law, a very conservative um, uh, version of Jewish religious law should be the guiding um, 
uh, rule uh, in the land and that anyone who's non-Jewish uh, should be either expelled or co- coerced to leave. Um, but there's nothing new about Itamel Benville. Um, Itamel Benville and other right-wing politicians that have been agitating at various crisis points like Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan and Rah Salamud and all over the West Bank and the Northern Negev, Nakab and in the Jordan Valley, these are activists. These are politician activists who believe um, that if they insert themselves into a crisis point, then they can create divisions and they can advocate for their position, which is actually a very effective activist tactic. It's just unfortunate that it is activism on behalf of um, a fascistic form of racism. So uh, that's where Itamar Benville comes from. I've been covering um, Sheikh Jarrah since 2009, and it's more or less going the same direction, which is the theft of Palestinian homes, the demolition of Palestinian homes, the eviction of Palestinian families, um, and the general dispossession of Palestinians, as has been the practice of um, frontline, you know, Israeli practices since even before the state was formed. Uh, It's what most people here call the ongoing Nakba. Where is it going is a very, very big question, because on the one hand, of course, we have now very right-wing government, uh, government that is ruled by an incredibly uh, you know, powerful settler right uh, branch of Israeli politics that uh, is unashamedly racist. Um, the prime minister is somebody who is very famous for um, detailing his uh, ideas about uh, ethnic cleansing of non-Jews from this place. Um, and so it's, you know, on the one hand, you can say, since this is the government in power and since they're allowing this version of Israeli politics to take a stranglehold, therefore it's possible that, you know, Sheikh Jarrah will uh, undergo an even further ethnic cleansing and so on. But, um, you know, at the same time, you know, it's 2022. Um, The work of many, many, many Israeli and Palestinian activists has uh, had its effect. And I would say that virtually the entire Israeli left from wall to wall acknowledges the fact that Israel, uh, Israel's role in the West Bank and Gaza Strip is apartheid. In East Jerusalem, it's apartheid. And many Israeli organizations also recognize that Israel's tiered legal system inside its borders, is uh, its internationally recognized borders, is also apartheid. Um, you know, we also have the former attorney general of Israel, um, Michael Ben Yair. Yeah. yeah, Michael Ben Yair, who actually incidentally has a, his family home is in Sheikh Jarrah. So he grew up with the crisis literally on that front line. Um, but he's not alone. You know, the former heads of Israel's Shin Bet, which is the first. Basically, the Israeli version of the FBI, uh, former heads of the Mossad, which is like the Israeli version of the CIA, um, countless politicians, um, two heads of state, like two prime ministers, uh, you know, many, many, many people in power who uh, were responsible for Israeli apartheid have called Israel an apartheid state and have uh, publicly acknowledged that Israel is an apartheid state. Um, so there, there, there is an effect to those things. Uh, And I think that that effect uh, shows that Israelis in general are much more politically aware now than they've been in decades. And uh, that could also have its political effect. So where is this going, I think, is a question as a journalist I'm not able to answer. But I can tell you that there are uh, many streams inside of Israel that are going and pushing for um, divergent directions. Well, you've mentioned the Israeli left and and also, as a journalist, I've been uh, observing the Israeli left, which is pretty much non-existent uh, politically for for now m- several years. I mean, it, it it has not exercised any influence, hasn't hasn't played an important role. It's very encouraging, you know. Like when you mention, uh, I just want to remind our audience: uh, Michael Ben Ben Yair or Michael Ben Yair, the former Attorney General of Israel, he wrote a piece li- recently. Starting with with great sadness, I conclude that my country is now an apartheid regime. So you have all these different forces and activists, but we are not. I mean, the question is maybe should be, uh, is there, I mean, is this Israel's South Africa moment? 
when you have four reports saying that Israel is an apartheid state, when you have a former attorney general saying that Israel is an apartheid state, when you have Israeli activists along with their Palestinian neighbors demonstrating, trying to protect the people in in South Africa, I don't. We don't see that there is that kind of parallel to what happened. Like there is a turning point, or people what they call it, uh, South Africa moment. I mean, do you feel there is a South Africa moment, or is it near? Well, first of all, I think that your assumption is incorrect that there is a very strong Israeli left and it's a much more active is, uh, left than I'm talking, uh, I'm, most I'm, I'm talking within the government. It's not playing a role. Oh, but the government the is irrelevant to most dead. of the things that happen here. Right. And I think that it's really, really dismissive to call the Israeli left non-existent. Israel is a very active left. I mean, organizations are being formed and coalitions are being formed all the time. And I think the people who have dedicated their entire lives and have sacrificed enormous amounts in order to fight for peace and equality should not be dismissed. Uh, then I take, I'm sorry, I, just, I, take, I take this back. I didn't mean they're non-existent in, in the sense because I know a lot of my friends belong to the Israeli left. I'm talking politically within the government. I'm talking about Big well, you part. can argue that there's a political left inside the government. It all depends on where you draw these arbitrary, you know, invented ideas about a so-called left and a so-called right. Uh, if you're talking about a movement that is pushing towards democracy, there's certainly a very strong one inside the government and at all levels of the Israeli um, you know, government, including middle mid-level bureaucrats and, and all levels. Except, uh, I really except, think that, except now that for this, this kind of like big big picture kind of calling this and this i mean i don't find that useful so i don't use that language right but uh, as far as israel south africa moment israel south africa moment was in june 1967 when it decided to create a permanent temporary occupation uh, over millions of people as it, in an effort to exclude millions of people from democracy um what's happening now is that finally the organizations that should have called it by its name have finally caught up after more than 50 years. So I think that, uh, you know, just like Mahmoud Mamdani says, in 1984, people thought that uh, South Africa was going to break down into civil war and that Rwanda is going to uh, lead towards peace and reconciliation. And 10 years later, we saw what happened in Rwanda and we saw what happened in South Africa. So I don't, again, don't know where things are going. I don't think any journalist what, worth their salt engages in um, reading the future. But I do think that um, at this moment, it is very important to capitalize on the political significance of Amnesty International calling the spade a spade. So you feel the Israeli left is is now growing, right? And, and it's getting more powerful in disseminating probably the information. I was talking in, in essence about having a, a, uh, a control of, a, of the government or having a, a, a bigger voice because since Netanyahu, I mean, Netanyahu was the longest serving prime minister of Israel ever. And now we see the government even moving to the right of Netanyahu. I mean, it, you know, and so when you look at it politically, you say, well, how can there be a reconciliation when you have this type of government in control in Israel? Because again, most things that happen here are not just the government. You can't you can't understand the American people by only looking at who's in Congress. I think you know if you're looking at our region, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's Syria, whether it's Jordan or Egypt, massive changes have happened not because of politicians. So you seem to be more optimistic, basically, than I am. That I feel that, I mean, I realize there is a massive movement, and that's great. In, in as far as having the left, I don't. Is, I'm not an optimist about Israel and Palestine, but I do think that it's really important to understand the reality. I don't particularly hold um, a lot of faith in the idea of pessimism or optimism. That's not my job. I just try to understand the reality to the best of my ability. You have the boycott divestment movement, and it's playing a role. I've been speaking to several of my Israeli colleagues, and they've been saying, listen, this is the only tool that might work. Others have been saying, no, this is just like uh, it angers people there. They feel 
um, you know, isolated uh, people who practice this uh, have been accused of, uh, of anti-Semitism. I mean, do you see having an international pressure on Israel from both from within and without with this uh, tool, which was used during South Africa, which is the BDS, will work? Are you are you asking me about? Are you asking me whether BDS advocates have faced persecution, or are you asking me whether the BDS movement is what's going to end Israeli apartheid? Yeah, I'm not, actually, I'm not clear on your question. Actually, this is what I'm asking. I'm asking if this if it's going to have an effect, and in the long run, that that is the only thing that's going to work to to kind of dismantle apartheid. No, absolutely not. So you you of don't of course not. You don't think you don't think it's, it it has any effects. That's not true. I don't think it doesn't have any effect. I think that uh, you know the the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement started in two thousand and five. It had uh, a dec a very very active decade in its first decade, and we saw that it had massive impact on uh, public opinion, uh, especially in the West, um, especially on university campuses, and especially in the in the um, liberal circles in the Jewish liberal circles abroad. It had a massive effect. Um, it recruited generations of activists or a generation of activists. In that sense, it had massive impact. But, um, you know, all of BDS put together is potentially 5% of what's going to impact the change. And I don't think that the BDS uh, or the boycott, the international boycott movement was the only thing that brought down this uh, South African apartheid. I think that that's wishful thinking. Um, but yeah, I mean, every kind of activism that's working towards the end of apartheid is useful. I certainly think that it's a very useful thing. I'm glad that it exists. I'm looking forward to it transitioning from the B to the S to the D um, uh, and hopefully, you know, dragging the governments along with it uh, abroad, especially. But uh, no, I don't think the BDS movement is going to be the one thing that breaks down Israeli apartheid because, again, I don't engage in in fortune telling. So I I don't think that as journalists, our job is to say, this is how it's gone. This is how it's going. Therefore, this is how it's going to go. Because um, every journalist who's done that in the past, and when it comes to Israel and Palestine, has you know been proven wrong. This place has a tendency to um, crush fortune telling. So uh, I'm not, I don't engage with, with, with that. I, I can tell you what's happening on the ground today. And I can tell you about what has happened on the ground here in the past. But I can't tell you what's going to happen in the future. No, I mean, no one can tell, but uh, you might have a sense as far as uh, seeing if, if it's exerting enough pressure to, to affect it. It's not change. exerting enough pressure. It's and it will never exert enough pressure as long as it's, uh, you know, engaged in so much navel gazing and the obsession with individual boycott. Um, you know, PACB and the founders of the BDS movement have been very clear that the B is there for mostly for the activists' consciousness, but the main goals are the S and the D, sanctions and divestment. And unfortunately, the BDS movement has had very, very limited success with sanctions or divestment because Israel is still perceived by many countries in the West as a legitimate government, as a legitimate state, even though it's an apartheid state, even though it's a settler colonial state. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the so-called West is a colonial power is an imperial colonial powers that are not going to oppose a, a colonial movement without seriously paying the consequences for their own crimes. You've lived, of course, in Canada. I started talking about uh, settler colonialism, and, and that's, uh, uh, I mean, we know the situation right here in the United States as far as there is a uh, bipartisan uh, support uh, for Israel. It doesn't matter whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans. What's the situation in in Canada? I mean, even with this, what's what's the position of uh, the both the Canadian government and and people at large when it comes to now what's going on, especially with those recent mm -hmm. revelations about apartheid? Well, the Israel, uh, sorry, the Canadian foreign po uh, the Canadian foreign policy in regards to Israel and Palestine is a very sort of middle of the road policy. It talks about two state solution end of settlements and so on. Um, however, uh, the Israel, the, sorry, the Canadian public is much further along in terms of um, its uh, understanding of Israel as a colonial power. Um, surveys illustrate that uh, there's uh, growing support for 
um, the end of colonialism in Israel and Palestine, uh, that there's uh, growing support for uh, the local indigenous or I would say Palestinian population. Um, and there's also, of course, a very strong and growing opposition to any voice critical of the actions of the government of Israel. And unfortunately, in recent years, we've also seen a, a very um, dangerous uh, muddling um, um, of anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism uh, and the uh, weaponization of anti-Semitism uh, as a tool towards silencing criticism uh, of the actions of the state of Israel. And that's been very, uh, very, very uh, effective as a self-censorship um, effect in Canada. Um, but where the Canadian public is, uh, I think that uh, the connections between Israeli settler colonialism and Canadian settler colonialism have been made very powerfully, mostly, by, of course, by indigenous activists, but also by settler activists uh, and also by Palestinian activists. Um, uh, the government, uh, I think, probably is further right than the public, but I haven't done the work to actually justify that with anything but a feeling. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the weaponization of uh, anti-Semitism. That's why we're seeing this, uh, obviously, also right here in the United States and uh, the uh, attacks on academic freedom. I mean, uh, uh, I've also like been seeing this, I mean, here, right here in the United States, of course, on college campuses. Is this something that's also ongoing uh, in Canada as far as also the attack on academic yeah. freedom? Yeah, just as we've seen the, in the United States, there's a very frightening rise of anti-Semitism um, with the attacks in Pittsburgh uh, that led to the tragic death of 11 people, the most violent attack on a synagogue on a Shabbat um, Sabbath. Also, we've seen, um, a, you know, what happened in Texas just a month ago, um, a similar kind of anti-Semitism is growing in Canada, and it's just terrifying. Um, Canada's had the biggest engagement with alt-right and neo-Nazi um, activity online of almost any Western state. And so it is becoming increasingly dangerous to be visibly Jewish in Canada, and it's becoming increasingly dangerous to be any kinds of Jewish in, in Canada. Um, one of the organizations I work with, which is a secular Jewish organization, has been uh, attacked by neo-Nazi several times. And so we've seen the impact of the rise of anti-Semitism on the Jewish population, um, and therefore any muddling of actual anti-Semitism with criticism of the actions of the state of Israel is an incredibly dangerous um, gamble that uh, Israeli apologists are gambling with. And uh, as a Jewish person living in Canada, I think that it is criminal to compare um, the, the struggles that we're facing as a minority um, and as an ethnic minority, specifically at the hands of uh, neo-Nazis to criticism, legitimate criticism of the state of Israel. Liat Rachansegi, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thanks for having me. Well, that's the voice and the face of Leah Terchansky, uh, Israeli-Canadian journalist, speaking with uh, you, Jamal, about uh, Israeli apartheid. You know, you have to give her a lot of credit, obviously. It takes, takes a lot to be able to uh, speak about Israeli apartheid as an Israeli citizen, uh, dual Israeli-Canadian citizen. I mean, it's not as if, you know, I mean, she makes the, the obvious point about uh, Canadian colonialism, <laughs> obviously. Settler colonialism, not just right. settler colonialism in Canada and the United States. And Yeah, and I mean, it's the same is... thing. And by the way, the Canadians uh, continue to find evidence of ongoing ethnic uh, cleansing of the indigenous communities in Canada that they not only ethnically cleansed, but sexually assaulted and abused and, and, and kind of desecrated graves. I mean... You know, I think there was a report today just uh, saying that they are reaching some uh, monetary settlement or something right. like this. I but, haven't read the her, details of it, but right. at least there is admittance. Uh, well, on exactly. That, that's the point. At least the Canadians have admitted that they're settler colonialists and they need to make amends. Uh, and by the way, the settler colonialists, the Canadians, they've given land back that they stole from the set, from the indigenous communities in Canada. Not all of it, which, you know, was all theirs uh, originally. But 
you know, here we go, Jamal. I mean, Leah's right in a sense that the international community, and I will say the international community as represented by governments and, and heads of governments are, are way behind because, you know, people who, who know about settler colonialism and Israeli apartheid, we've been screaming about this for decades and decades and, and decades. The NGO community is starting to get on board, but whether or not the international community as represented as represented by heads of state are getting on board, that's another story, right? You have Nancy Pelosi and her entourage celebrating the Israelis after this report. And well, I will also I'll also add just really quickly, Jamal, that the Israelis are sending a high level delegation to the to the Emir of uh, Bahrain this week. So it seems like not not only is Israel uh, getting a pass, Jamal, they're being rewarded by Gulf, Emir, uh, Gulf emirs and heads of state, as well as politicians, the Democratic, Democrat politicians uh, in the U.S. Congress. Well, what I have to say is that the ripples from this human, uh, from Amnesty International and other human rights organizations labeling and classifying Israel as an apartheid state. Uh, the, the ripples are, are being felt just as we're talking. The story is not complete. The story has not finished. And that's why I believe this whole trip by Nancy Pelosi and other congressmen and congresswomen going with her is to sit down and talk about a new strategy to how to whitewash Israel and counter the argument about apartheid right. because right. I right. I think Israel the, the, the Israeli leadership is feeling it for the first time. It's not like it it hasn't gradually been growing on them, starting from their own human rights organization B'Tselem and uh, and others, and then moving on to Human Rights Watch, and then now. Amnesty International, but I think it's for the very first time they're feeling that this label is going to stick. Right. And so before, I mean, just just think about it, just they even before Amnesty International, the official release of Amnesty International report happened, the Israeli government started vilifying, slandering Amnesty. They were like so desperate in, in first to, uh, you know, uh, trying to damage their reputation, etc., and to stop them because right. they haven't done that. This was all in a, an attempt to preempt and stop them from publishing it. Now it has been published. I think now it's sinking in that this label is going to stick and they need their big guns. And what bigger guns are you going to have than the ones that are at the U.S. Congress? Well, right. that's, exa that, that's exactly right, Jamal. But here's the problem. Let me just draw out the political consequences. There's already a fracture within the Democratic Party between the more progressive elements and the less progressive elements, as represented by Nancy Pelosi. Now, Barbara Lee claims she's progressive, although her going on this trip is, is kind of shakes that, uh, you know, label from her. But Eric Swalwell and Ro Khanna, Ro Khanna represents Silicon Valley in San Jose. Eric Swalwell, the East Bay, Walnut Creek area, kind of a very wealthy area in the East Bay of Northern California. Um, they're not, they, they like to see themselves as progressive, but what's going to happen to the Democratic Party, Jamal, when you have these very progressive elements who are being uh, basically ignored yet again, who are being kind of, I would say disrespected. I mean, here you have Amnesty, B'Tselem, you have Human Rights Watch, all saying the same thing that these progressive members of Congress have been saying. And just a quick reminder, more recently, Michael Ben-Yair, the formal, former right. Attorney General of Israel. Right. So I think the Democrats are shooting themselves yet again in the foot, Jamal. We have a midterm election coming up. I've already predicted that the midterms are going to be a disaster for the Democrats. And going and celebrating Israeli apartheid with the prime minister, with the Knesset, and having all these photo ops, is it's going to cause more problems. Well, I well mean, you see, this is the sad reality. The, the sad reality is, uh, you know, those uh, congressmen and congresswomen still believe that 
siding, even even though that that they are on the wrong side of history with Israel, is going to get them more votes and getting re-elect, re-elected in 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 the U.S. because they they fear now uh, that this is going to be part of the discussion, saying that the Democratic Party has abandoned Israel and they let Human Rights Watch and uh, Amnesty International publish these reports. And so they're trying to show that, no, that's that's not our stance, and we are still the good soldiers. And that's my, my belief. And, uh, yeah, I think that's they're, right, they're, they're answering to APAC as usual, Yeah, uh, sadly. But I, but I think that's exactly right. The problem being is that in addition to the Democrats kind of really taking a big hit, in my opinion, coming up in the midterms, this is only going to further alienate the more progressive elements of the Democratic Party, which got Joe Biden elected, which allowed the majority to, to, of the Democrats to have a majority in Congress. That's going to get wiped out, man. The, the, the Democrats are going to lose the House. I think that's almost for certain. And they have a really good chance of losing the majority in the Senate. Uh, so, you know, if because I, I mean, I could just see, you know, if I were running against Nancy Pelosi or you were running against Nancy Pelosi, we would put up her photo op of uh, dancing with the prime minister, the Israeli apartheid prime minister with Human Rights Watch, Beth Salem, and Amnesty calling it an apartheid state. We would say, Nancy Pelosi, why are you dancing with war criminals? And, you know, it's a legitimate kind of claim, Nancy Pelosi uh, coming from San Francisco, so-called progressive areas. And, you know, the same for Ro Khanna, the same for Barbara Lee, the same for Eric Swalwell. Each of them trying to fancy themselves as progressive are doing a dance with the devil right now by taking this trip. Well, we're going to move on to the next topic, Jess, which is uh, Sheikh Jarrah. I mean, well, yeah, this is speaking of war time. crimes... Speaking yeah, of war speaking, crimes. Speaking of war crimes, speaking of ethnic cleansing, Sheikh Jarrah has witnessed again, yet again, another violent assault by Israeli settlers and the Israeli police because they take right. one side, they protect right. the settlers, and they go after Palestinians. A group of settlers led by far-right Knesset member, a, a Kahanist, okay, a Kahanist, a racist, Kahanist. It's it been uh, basically compared to the KKK uh, in the United States, uh, the Knesset member Itmar Ben-Givir. Uh, they had erected a tent on a, on, on a land uh, next to the uh, Salem's, uh, Salem's family home, uh, which uh, Israeli settlers have been trying to grab for the past uh, years, I should say. And uh, this Knesset member uh, has set up his, what he calls his parliamentary office there. So he's working from this tent outside the home, rallying all these groups uh, to provoke the families. uh, Unbelievable. And they're dancing day and night, singing and chanting racist and Islamophobic chants. Uh, Anyone can go online and and just Google and see tons and tons of videos, death to Arabs, uh, you know, slurs, anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab slurs, anti-Muslim slurs, and so forth. They're trying to provoke them. And of course, they try to get uh, Palestinians to react. And then the Israeli police and Shin Bet step they step in and they arrest Palestinians and they beat right. up Palestinians, you know. And uh, that's so. Uh, what, what, what's the world going to do, Jamal? Obviously, nothing, I mean, nothing. I mean, the world's not going to do anything. First of all, um, I mean, well, remember, I just want to say because you've mentioned actually the Israeli Prime Minister sending a delegation. I don't know if he's going himself also to Bahrain. I think he's going to Bahrain. Yes, I and, think so. Yes, and. Uh, the whole pretexts about the so-called Abraham Accords were to help Palestinians claim well, their land sure, and stop sure, settlements. So, sure. so this so really this helps. Is, yeah, this, this really is helps. thrown back in the face of those people who represented the UAE and Bahrain and, and stood smiling and laughing in front of the White House with uh, Donald Trump and Benjamin and Jared, Netanyahu at the, and at the time. And lying to the face of millions of Americans and billions across the globe saying, 
we're starting the Abraham Accords because we're doing it just to help Palestinians and stop the set, uh, settlers uh, from grabbing more uh, Palestinian land. Well, so I think that's exactly right, Jamal. And so the Israeli leadership is going to be kind of rewarded by the uh, Bahraini uh, monarchy and the emir there. Uh, I mean, this is kind of the calling card, as you said. I mean, you know, they need to show how they're, you know, reaching out. They're making peace with, you know, their Arab neighbors. All these wonderful things, a visit from the Congress. And I might add, and this is going to be a segue to our next segment. So, you know, you don't hear anything about amnesty still, you know, in the press. But what you hear is how the apartheid state of Israel is reaching out to Ukrainian Jewish community to help them in their time of need because they may be forced to leave their homes in Ukraine if war breaks out. So, you know, they must be really nervous, Jamal, because the Hasbara machine is working overtime. Bahrain, Nancy Pelosi, Ukraine, all of these things that they're doing because they're saying, look over here. But don't look over here when right in right in front of you, you have an apartheid state committing war crimes, ethnically cleansing Palestinians, not just in Sheikh Jarrah, Jamal, but we know throughout uh, all of historic Palestine. I mean, I want to remind our listeners that the amnesty report just wasn't talking about Palestinians in the West exactly. Bank and Gaza, but Palestinians living in 48 are being subjected to the same apartheid practices. And, so, and, and that's why they're freaking out about this because yes. it's different than the and the other uh, reports. But you said a very key uh, key word: rewarding Israel, rewarding. That's exactly. I mean, this this goes against the grain of international diplomacy. What does what happens usually right. when you have an apartheid state or a state that is violating human rights? What do you do? You try to isolate it, right? You isolate it. You economic you pressure, pressure, sanctions, and so on. Instead, they are rewarding it. Instead, you're sending a delegation, uh, the United States, to Israel. Bahrain is inviting its prime minister and so forth. I mean, this is this is kind of the irony of it all. When we, meaning the West, people in the West are trying to isolate Russia now and they're trying to isolate China for its dismal human rights record, the opposite goes when it That's comes exactly to, right. to Israel. I mean, I mean, it's it's really it's not just it's not just it's maddening. It it's comical in a way. Yeah, it, it would be comical if it wasn't causing harm and you know, death, destruction, and uh, humiliation to the, you know, millions of Palestinians who have to face up to the apartheid practices that they have to face every day at checkpoints, having their land stolen, having their olive trees, you know, lit aflame. But, you know, I know we keep coming back to this, Jamal, but the strength of the rewarding, you know, having Nancy Pelosi and the Emir of Bahrain and, you know, the media coverage is all in response, and you said this earlier today, is all in response to the anxiety that the Israeli leadership feels that this label, and it's not a label, this this kind of calling out of the apartheid regime of Israel for what it is, an apartheid state. So their nervousness translates sticking. in yeah it's sticking because they're they're forcing Nancy Pelosi to bring her per, her progressive entourage i don't see that they're inviting Rashid Tlaib or Elhan Omar Rashid <laughs> Tlaib was denied even exactly even well that, that's she, uh, she holds that's a diplomatic my, passport but yeah, that's I mean, another story yeah, we talked I mean, about this yeah yeah i mean so listen this is you know i i in some kind of perverse way this this looks so transparent and disgusting that even even Nancy Pelosi with all of her political calculations realizes that this is eventually going to cost them and when they're writing you know you know preparing for very tight races where they need african american votes when they need other people of color to come out and vote when they need the progressive wing of the democratic party to come out they're, what are they going to say? We are we support hitching apartheid. our wagon to an apartheid <laughs> regime. This is what exactly. they're going to say. No, that's that, and, and that's let's exactly see how, how progressives react. We're going to discuss this uh, more next week after that trip is completed. 
but now let's uh, talk just about the biggest uh, news, which is right. dominating basically aside from maybe, and I don't know, the Super Bowl, probably yesterday, <laughs> people calmed down and, and your team lost, sadly. It's okay. But uh, I'm happy okay. for a California team to win. I'm not. Um, I'm, not my, I'm not happy for the Rams, by the way. But well, I'm happy. Story. Well, my my team is the 49ers. So right. But same. You know, you know. So, anyways, Russian President Vladimir Putin is adding more military force, like that, asking and increasing the capability near the Ukraine's border. He's also adding more uh, ships in 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 the sea. And this is as described, by the way, I have to rely for now on information provided by the Pentagon. This is what John Kirby is saying. He said he's adding all these things with each passing day. Uh, even though uh, Russia is saying, no, we, we don't have any plans to, to invade uh, <laughs> the Ukraine. I mean, this is Putin saying the West is exaggerating and they are. And listen, I, I mean... I think I take a little bit of a different position because I remember all the uh, war drum beatings and and saying that uh, Iraq was ready to roll, launch WMDs and and so forth from George W. Bush to to Blair, um, and then we found out that's all that was all nonsense, non-existent. Yeah. Yeah, I, although I think the calculus here is very different because here, here's my my analysis uh, about the situation. Number one, Putin has already won. And he's won because his status and his power in the international community and stature has gone up. You have the whole, you know, the G7, NATO, all the leaders in the West talking to him, rushing to him, meeting with him, giving him a lot more credibility and power and standing uh, just so he, I, I think he's already won. Number well, that's two, why that's that's exactly goes back to our question: Is he bluffing? Is Putin bluffing? Well, I don't believe he's bluffing. Only because I think he's doing part of his calculus is above and beyond just having troops at the border. He's already waged war. He's waged an information war, which I believe he's winning. He's he's waging, as we speak, uh, cyber attacks, we, which we're not reading about right now. But there are cyber attacks. Listen, the United, States, the United States has been saying uh, for the past at least 10 days, he could invade any day, any days. Might be today, might be tomorrow. They've ordered all U.S. Right. nationals to leave the country. And they said, that this is it. We're not going to come and extract you out. They moved. Uh, today, the U.S. Embassy from Kiev to Lviv, I think Lviv, uh, they yeah. moved it uh, away from the capital because they're, you know, why do you move it from the capital? Except yeah, that so I don't think he's, I don't, I don't think Putin's bluffing. Just to answer the question directly, Jamal, I don't think he's bluffing, and you know, he's in it for the long haul. He has a longer-term strategic uh, arm and gain and perspective on what's going to happen. And he can keep troops there for a very, very long time and continue to put pressure. He wants to divide NATO. He wants to um, make sure that the Ukraine does not become part of NATO. Uh -huh. And he's winning because— you know, uh, Zelensky, you know, the president of Ukraine has said, and we're hearing now, there's no immediate plans to join NATO. Well, that's kind of what Putin wants, Jamal. So I don't think Putin's bluffing at all. Uh, this is not a this is not an individual that bluffs. I don't think, I, I mean, I just don't see it. I don't believe that he'll invade. I, I, I mean, in, from my perspective, I think I go with you like almost to the invasion part. He's showing a lot, a lot of uh, force, you know, and and basically sending a very strong message. And you're right. You said that he's there for the long run. Yeah, they can't keep complaining every single day. He can keep the troops forever, and breathing down the neck of uh, the Ukraine and down the neck of uh, NATO, because he has one basic demand along with other things which is that, that and, and I think this is what's going to happen, because if you look at today's uh, statement from the uh, Ukrainian president, uh, he said that uh, diplomatic resolution to the crisis was far 
from exhausted, even though the United States and its allies have been saying that's it. No more diplomacy. No, I think this no, is No, I think I think you're right, Jamal. I, I think I think he wants he said basically the central Russian demand um and using this uh, largest military, you know, threatening with a large military conflict is basically that the Ukraine will sign an agreement saying that it will never allow NATO in. I, I mean, he doesn't want, because in 2008, uh, just NATO said that they were going to allow at some point the Ukraine, and they've been expanding its their influence, well, uh, and adding he, Poland, adding former Soviet Union republics. The right breathing, <laughs> you know, right at his borders. Absolutely. You know, and he doesn't want a country at his borders to be part of NATO. Yeah, and whether or not he... We, it doesn't matter whether or not we believe it's a legitimate demand. I mean, Putin, from his analysis, which is to reconstitute the USSR, to reconstitute the power and the glory of the former Soviet Union, he, that, he has a right to that strategic interest. Whether or not it ends up being a smart geopolitical strategic interest or not, who knows? But that is his interest. I will say there's another thing, Jamal, that's really helping Putin before we wrap up here. When when he does these things, oil goes up to a hundred dollars a barrel. And gas oil, prices. It, yeah. So when when the price of oil and gas goes through the roof, guess who benefits mostly from that? Besides the Gulf, uh, uh, the the Gulf states, it's 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 really Russia. That's their number one source of GDP. So he's sitting pretty right now. The price of oil is doubled, tripled almost at its low. And he's at the center of the diplomatic world. I think he won. I think he's winning. Uh, I'm, I, I still have doubts that uh, an invasion will happen. I think we're looking at someone with a gun pointing at, pointed at someone's face short of pulling the trigger. Will he pull the trigger? The question is, I have my we'll doubts. See. I think he's being very smart and very strategic and he's going to force the Ukraine to sign an agreement saying that it will never allow NATO in. I'm not as optimistic, Jamal, but we'll see. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our, our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download all our shows. They're right there, and we'll talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. Thank you.